Hey, I know you're probably driving or running or cleaning the house or doing something else when you're listening to this, but look, if you're a B2B marketer and you need to start generating revenue from your marketing, then you have to check out our 12-week program, the B2B Incubator. It's built for small, in-house B2B marketing teams with limited time and budget. We give you the strategy, the templates, and the tools to start driving revenue, not just leads. So if you're ready to act on all the advice Kevin and I give you, next time you take that first sip of coffee in the morning, make sure you head to the B2B Incubator and apply now. There's only 10 spots available per cohort with our next one launching at the end of May, 2024. Remember, the B2B Incubator, apply now so you don't miss out. We've had B2B marketing managers, CMOs, marketers in demand generals, content leads, and more all go through this program and they're currently executing the demand strategies that they've created. Some are now even contributing as much as 80% of the pipeline to their business after working through it. Make sure you check out the b2bincubator.com and apply now to start driving more demand and more revenue for your brand. Okay, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the B2B Playbook Podcast. Each week, we discuss strategies and tactics to help B2B businesses grow online. We're your hosts, Kevin and George, a couple of digital marketing professionals. We've waded through the noise and made the mistakes so you don't have to. The B2B world has changed and you need to put your customers at the heart of your marketing. We'll cover how you can use our framework, the five Bs, to create a brand that customers are ready to buy from, love and advocate for. We'll get insights from successful people in the industry and cover the latest trends to keep you on the cutting edge of the B2B world. If you're interested in B2B marketing strategies and tactics that work, then this podcast is for you. Subscribe to get the latest from the B2B playbook first. Remember, successful B2B marketing starts with the buyer. Welcome back to the B2B playbook. George, we're meant to continue the analysis series this week, but we were lucky enough to have a great guest on the show, weren't we? And he was here to share some really relevant and insightful things at a very timely juncture for us. So listeners, it's a surprise interview episode, but don't worry, we'll be back to analysis episodes next week. Wow, your first introduction, Kev. I think you nailed it. Plenty of gusto there. (laughs) Thank you, George. Thank you. Yes, no, this week's interview, as you said, it's with Silvio Perez. And listeners, he's the head of product innovation at metadata.io. Metadata helps businesses automate their paid campaigns and drive more revenue. Now, he's also the founder and CEO of Ad Conversion, which is an awesome educational resource that helps B2B marketers create demand, generate leads, and scale revenue with paid advertising. He's joining us this week to talk about how B2B companies can use paid channels like Google Ads to capture demand and deliver real results for the business. Yeah, and we've been giving paid channels a different angle in our framework, our 5Bs framework. We kind of make it an amplification tool after you have your helpful content out there. We also know, though, that it can be a great tool to get an initial revenue boost to get you on your growth journey in B2B marketing. In fact, George, this is something you would know because I speak about it to you frequently. It's something I particularly believe in. I think paid channels play two roles in that journey for B2B marketing. There's one near the start after you have that good organic base that you want to scale. And the other is when you've built longer term, strong relationships with your dream customers and your dream 100. 
and you want to amplify your helpfulness, your helpful content and reach. Two steps in that growth cycle. So that's what we're exploring today with Silvio. How can you get started with those pay channels in the context of that first scenario? The first time you're scaling your organic base and the practical things that you can do to help you do that. And it was such a great conversation. As many of your listeners know, Kevin and I are originally from performance marketing backgrounds, as is Silvio. But it's always so great to have another expert opinion. Someone who's, I guess, more independent, has come from it at a different angle to us, Kev, and can offer even more practical value for our listeners. And boy, oh boy, there were so many very specific things that you can do from this episode, including how to exactly get started and set up your first campaigns and optimize them on the Google Ads platform. We're so grateful for Silvio and agreeing to come on and provide that viewpoint for us and provide that practical advice. We've had him earmarked for a really, really long time to come on the show. So it was awesome to get him here. We hope as well it's become super clear to our listeners now that our guests are always experts in a particular field that's relevant to our framework. And are also all people that you can hopefully trust because we can trust them as well. And that's because they're really out there giving away amazing knowledge and going long on being helpful. That's one of our key selection criteria for having guests on the show alongside the fact that they're experts in their particular fields. Because we know that makes them more likely to be a continually great resource to you listeners. Yep, he's a great guy and he's definitely going long on being helpful. All right, listeners, we hope you enjoyed this conversation with Silvio Perez. Welcome back to the B2B Playbook. Listeners, as you know, when it comes to guests on our show, we only have the cream of the crop. We've actually had today's guest in mind for over a year to come on at this exact moment in the B2B Playbook journey. His name is Silvio Perez, and he's here to share how B2B companies can use paid search platforms like Google Ads to capture demand and deliver real results for their business. Silvio is the head of product innovation at metadata.io. Metadata helps businesses automate their paid campaigns and drive more revenue. He is also the founder and CEO of Ad Conversion, an awesome educational resource that helps B2B marketers create demand, generate leads, and scale revenue with paid advertising. Silvio, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am super pumped to be here. Thanks for having me, George. Good to see you. Yes. I didn't know about the year. That's uh, news to me. Uh, It's cool to hear. Yeah, I don't know if uh, that makes us look like a couple of stalkers um, because we actually haven't really engaged until I reached out to you (laughs) super recently. But that's part of really what Kevin and I are doing with the B2B Playbook podcast is we've really had our first episodes, well, our first 100 episodes planned out from the beginning and earmarked true experts uh, that we bring on at the end of each season. And that's why we're so pumped to have you here. Kevin and I have been following your journey and Metadata's journey for the good part of a year now. And we're just so excited that this time has finally come to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm super pumped. I feel like we're going to nerd out for sure. Awesome. Well, to kick things off, Silvio, I love your YouTube videos and the content that you put out on LinkedIn. Now, a lot of it is centered around Google ads. Google ads and other higher intent channels like Captera, they're getting a bit of a bad rap in our little bubble that we live in online, Silvio. Why do you think that is? I always say Google ads is a blessing and a curse. You are blessed with intent and you're cursed with scale. (laughs) 
And unfortunately, with these capture channels, there's only so many people bottom of the funnel ready to speak to somebody from sales or sign up for a free trial. So that's why they get a lot of bad rap. I always say, you know, creating demand is a infinite game and capturing demand is a finite game because there's just only so many people there. And really how soon you hit your wall of diminishing returns in terms of scale, bottom of the funnel, capturing demand really comes down to your total addressable market. So generally speaking, if you have a greater TAM, you can live bottom of funnel a lot longer. It also comes down to like your average deal size. So us at Metadata, we have a really small TAM, higher average deal size. So we're playing in a really small universe. So for us, staying bottom of funnel capture demand, it's not as advantageous versus if we were like a PLG company, average deal size, let's say less than $5,000 and, and a big TAM, maybe like a Shopify or something like that, we could play a bottom of funnel all day, every day and really focus on capturing demand. For now, I want to focus on uh, the blessing more than the curse because I think there is so much information around the curse of Google Ads in B2B and so many marketers listening have had negative experiences using a platform like Google Ads in the B2B space. Sylvia, where do you think the opportunity is in these demand capture channels like Google Ads? Yeah, specifically right now with Google, the number one thing is to make sure that you're actually feeding Google the right data. So right now with uh, iOS 14, Facebook is a lot more inefficient. Google isn't playing by those rules yet, but I could totally see that being in the future. So right now the biggest opportunity that I see is leveraging offline conversions and using value-based bidding in Google ads. So essentially there's um, client-side tracking and then there's server-side tracking. So client-side tracking is tracking via the pixel. So web conversions, the challenge with this is like it overcounted. Uh, the way they go about attributing conversions is not the best. So server side, you can basically send offline events of, for example, when a new lead is created or when a lead becomes an SQL or an opportunity is created or a deal becomes into revenue, you can feed those inputs back into Google within a 90 day click cycle and inform Google's bidding algorithms. So that's one huge area of opportunity that I don't see a lot of B2B advertisers taking advantage of. And that can really help you get more bang out of your buck, so to speak, in terms of informing Google's algorithms so that they can make better optimization and bidding decisions for you. I think another big one too is just whether you're doing it this way also, um, just making sure that when you're making optimization decisions in your Google search ads account, you're tying it back to pipeline and revenue. A lot of the times we just take what we see in our ad account at face value and we don't cross-reference that with our CRM performance. So that's key. You wanna make sure that you're actually scaling things that are actually converting into later stage pipeline for you and not just you know initial leads or initial conversions, especially if it's not server-side and you're tracking based on like web events, <laughs> you can really be uh, scaling the wrong thing. So essentially you just wanna make sure that whatever's working, you're putting more money in and you're feeding those inputs back into Google. And then I would say if you can take it a step further, also leveraging automation rules to really streamline the ongoing management is a huge area of opportunity. We're talking about Google ads right now, but the same is true across other ad channels. Oftentimes we're busy as B2B marketers, we're doing a thousand different things. And one of the biggest traps that everyone falls into is we just let things spend for too long. We don't catch it, right? We're busy, we gotta sleep. Uh, six to eight hours a night, depending on who you are. I know I need more of like seven to eight. And that's seven to eight hours I can go by of you spending on a keyword that exceeded your allowable cost target, right? So leveraging the automation rules where possible to be able to really use automation to your advantage to make you better and not worse. 
There's uh, so much to unpack there. That was a fantastic answer. And I think something that I know you've spoken about a lot and really touched on there was going beyond the lead and actually looking at is what we're doing tying to revenue. How do you feel? I mean, that's kind of tough to get started, right? Because it's difficult to get someone all the way through to uh, becoming an opportunity and then converting and then having enough data to then optimize that towards Google when you're running campaigns. But for many of our listeners, they're all just kind of getting started in that space. Where can people kind of get started in Google Ads? I think the easiest place to get started is with branded search campaigns. If, if it makes sense for you in terms of if you have a lot of competitors bidding on your brand name, I even say oftentimes just doing branded search, even if you're not as known, because you can drive that traffic to a dedicated conversion page, so it'll convert at a higher percentage, usually uh, works out well. So I would say number one, branded search. Number two, uh, high intent keywords. So really think through the mo- like your dream search. If this person searched exactly what it is that you wanted them to in Google and they went to your demo or trial page, what does that look like? And leveraging phrase and exact match campaigns. If you have very, very limited budgets, starting with exact match first on those high intent keywords, validating performance, and then moving on to phrase match to start to scale it out further. And then finally, uh, you can start to do something like broad discovery to really maximize your reach. But for those that are just starting out, really keep it as simple as what are your dream keywords that if somebody searched would be the best person in terms of a searcher, start with that with exact match and then you can scale from there. Yeah, that's awesome advice and a great place uh, for our listeners to get started. Focus on those high intent, longer tail keywords where people are much further along in their journey. Because I mean, it's hard to compete on those search terms with much higher volume. Um, I think I've seen you say it a few times, Silvio, in many cases, uh, it's really whoever can pay the most for a lead or the most for a sale is going to win on Google. So that's an awesome place to get started. Just adding on really quick to another huge area of opportunity that in terms of Google search that a lot of B2B advertisers are not taking advantage of is, so one of the biggest challenges from Google outside of like intent and scale is two people can search the same thing in Google and Google will treat them equally in the sense of, you know, I could be a VP of marketing and I can search demand gen platform, but I could also be a student of marketing and I can search demand gen platform and we'll both be served the same ad. So a lot of savvy B2B advertisers, what they're doing is they're starting to layer on audience filters on top of their search campaigns to be able to solve for that variable and to scale further. So this doesn't mean that you still shouldn't have your only your keyword based campaigns, but in addition to that, scaling beyond that and starting to leverage audiences with search and then using broad match is something that I'm seeing work more and more for different advertisers. Yeah, there's definitely some great options there for audiences to help you scale that. My God, I can't wait until the day comes where some of that firmographic data that we get from platforms like LinkedIn uh, is available on Google Ads, or at least until the day where uh, Bing or Microsoft Ads, as it's known now, continues to grow and we have that awesome firmographic data to target from the outset. Yeah, and I mean, even a simple starting point that this is kind of how I stumbled onto this was if you have Google Analytics connected in Google Analytics and you have your goal conversion set up, you can see your top in-market and affinity audiences. Oftentimes they'll make no logical sense. It'll be like, 
shoppers, technophiles, like just a bunch of random things. Just take your top 10 to 15 in market or affinity audiences and then layer that as a targeted audience with a broad match keyword that you know has converted in the past as phrase and exact and use that as a starting point. And just that simple um, filter I've seen work with certain companies. Like I had this one uh, person who reached out to me. He's like, I used that same setup and it drove my biggest PQO from, from Google ads. So like use that as a starting point if you have nothing else, just to really see if it works for you and you can get additional scale. But absolutely, when that, when that day comes, I'll be so happy myself. Uh, they're really, really limited in terms of their firmographic information. The other thing too that's really cool is you're driving this high intent traffic to your website. It's getting cookied and you're retargeting pixels on LinkedIn. So you can retarget that high intent traffic on LinkedIn, on Facebook, uh, on TikTok if you're using that or uh, all these other channels that you have pixels installed. That's awesome. So are you using responsive list search ads then, Silvio, to to retarget people who have already been to your site? Yeah, so um, we we use responsive search ads on Google ads uh, in terms of our, our ad type because of expanded text ads being sunsetted. But then on LinkedIn, for example, it, it, does, it could be as simple as like a, a single image or a carousel or a video retargeting people that have been to your website from Google. So for example, when you put in your, your URL string, practically speaking, you can put URL must contain UTM source of Google as an example, and you can filter that traffic. All right, folks, quick breather here. In my time in B2B marketing, generally I've come to realize that there are just certain tools that can be an absolute game changer. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about Leadfeeder. Uh, it's a tool that helps you cut through the data and turn those website visitors into solid leads and opportunities for your business. Leadfeeder shows you which companies are checking out your site, tracking their behavior, and it integrates all of this with your CRM. And the result is it's basically like a secret weapon for targeted lead engagement, and it really makes it easier for your team to convert website traffic into sales. Head to leadfeeder.com, give it a free demo, and you'll also get a free extended premium trial when you let the rep know that you found out about Leadfeeder through the B2B Playbook podcast. That's leadfeeder.com. Okay, check it out. Back to the show. Silvio, a lot of our B2B listeners have probably launched their own campaigns or worked with agencies to launch their campaigns, and they probably just haven't been met with the success that they'd hoped. What does success typically look like when launching and running paid media and channels like Google Ads? That's a great question. I think success is dependent on the person. I always say, for me personally, and like for Metadata and, and most of the B2B SaaS companies we work with, it's pipeline created and close one revenue is ultimately the success everyone's after, especially for Google search ads, because typically with Google search, you're paying more expensive clicks and you're limited in scale. So you really want to make sure that you're driving those folks into a capture page. And then, you know, you're starting to see that actually turn into revenue. But honestly, I would say for most folks, especially in the B2B SaaS space, if you can at least get a you know break even return on ad spend that is ultimately amazing in terms of true true success but even if you're at a loss for a bit and you really know your numbers and you're willing to you know uh, be more aggressive and and take a, a loss on the front end but you know six months eight months down the line it'll it'll work out for you in terms of your CAC payback then that's also a huge win as well 
Do you see it as a channel then, Sylvia, that really helps those businesses get to that next stage of growth? Because, I mean, you can run it at that break-even level. Is, is that where you see um, Google Ads' role? I see Google Ads and, and really just capture channels as initial channels to start you can do break even. You could even be profitable on Google Ads. It's just so highly dependent on what's your average deal size, what is your average cost per click, what is your landing page conversion rate. But generally speaking, the way I see capture channels is a way to get initial traction. Uh, so you really, I always think of them as like keeping the lights on, right? Before you can do something like demand creation, you need to feed your SDR team. You need to have deals coming in. You need people signing up for your product. So to get that initial product market fit or in terms of traction and like getting early adopters, like th there's an old saying that if you had to sell a hamburger, start with the people who are hungry. Don't go and try selling a hamburger to like vegans or vegetarians or whoever, right? Like that's going to be a hard sell. They don't even know that, in this case, they don't like meat, so that's a whole other conversation. But you know, so start with capture demand because that is going to like satisfy your initial interest in terms of giving you that runway where you have deals coming through, right? And you can be very methodical and sensitive in terms of your cost if you truly understand, for example, um, your average deal size and your lead to close one rate. Then you can figure out your break-even cost per lead, and you can use that as a north star metric in terms of optimizing on Google Search or even like on Captera or any of these other capture demand channels. So that way you understand, hey, as long as we keep our average cost per lead lower than our break even, then we're profitable. Or maybe we're willing to accept up to our break even cost per lead. So that way you can make these channels work in the interim. It all depends on how aggressive you are and if you have funding coming up and things like that. Um, but essentially start with capture demand, get activity coming, give you that runway. So now instead of having 100% of your budget on capture demand, now maybe it's only 80% and then you can free up 20% to start doing long-term efforts of demand creation. So that way you can start to build your brand, build your know, like, and trust in your market. So that way you are less dependent on these capture demand channels and that it really gives you a lot more runway over the long term. Yeah, that's an awesome approach. Uh, definitely makes sense to go out there, try and capture that demand. And then over time, as the business can afford it, start redistributing that into more demand creation efforts. And I love that really with every answer um, in this episode so far, you've led with that revenue mindset. And that comes back to knowing uh, what you can afford to spend to acquire a customer. Yeah. Um, I just think that's so awesome, Silvio, that you always have that in mind. Why do, you, why do you think that sometimes there is that disconnect between people who are running these platforms and then what they can actually do that's sustainable? I think a lot of it is just experience. You know, we just kind of go into it, not necessarily having the right frame of mind or whatnot. I started in B2C and I worked in digital products and e-commerce and SMB. So for us, we had to know our numbers because we didn't have funding as an example to like keep us afloat. B2B software is a weird space where like your company can be unprofitable for years and somehow you like go public. It's just a different world, you know, and a different mentality. I think it's definitely more common in B2B SaaS in terms of what I've seen. But like with, for example, e-com, especially if you're like like a bootstrapped e-commerce store, like you know your ROAS targets, you know these things pretty well. So I think a lot of it is just learning the, the ropes. I always say when it comes to paid ads, you wanna think like an investor, but like execute as a scientist. And you wanna you know, think like an investor. An investor knows 
their investments, in this case, our ICP, our market. Uh, we, we really study the channels, we understand the movements, and then we execute like a scientist in the sense of we set up experiments, we go in with the expectation of failure, but we're gonna learn from it. We understand our start and end date so we can compare against our baselines. Uh, we understand whether or not there was an actual lift or if we need to give things more time. Uh, when we have an idea, we actually see it through to execution. So having that philosophy, I think, is really helpful. I know when I first started, I was thinking very short term of, hey, I want to, you know, because I think we all kind of get sold the dream too, right? Like you spend a dollar and you make a dollar or like you spend a dollar and you get five dollars back. And it's not not right, but it takes time to get there. And it all comes down to like, you know, visibility and knowing what's working. Kevin and I have absolutely been guilty of that as well. We came from the B2C world, we were performance marketers, and we're completely bought into that mentality of return on investment. You know, you spend a dollar, make a dollar fifty. And we were just under the impression that you could scale that to infinity. And when we got into the B2B world, my God, what a rude shock that was, Silvio. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a it's a very interesting space. But at the end of the day, you know, successful advertising does come down to the numbers, whether or not you're gonna to continue to invest. Even if you're doing things like demand creation, you still gotta know your numbers. It doesn't mean that you can just kind of turn a blind eye. You don't have that direct attribution, but you should still understand your blended numbers. So understanding total spend and then understanding blended opportunity source for marketing, blended you know demos or free trials created, and then what does that look like in terms of like later stage pipeline? You still need to know your numbers because at the end of the day, especially when you're doing demand creation, you're not going to be able to sell to the board of advisors that you know our cost per consumption is this or like, you know, we spent fifty grand and a hundred thousand people watched a hundred percent of our video. Like they're not going to care, right? So you you need to think with the business in mind, and by doing so, that's going to make you so much more effective as a marketer as you are serving the same means. Yeah, talk about it in terms that uh, the executives actually care about. Talk about revenue. As you said, they don't care about how many impressions or clicks your ads got. They just want to see that what you're doing is actually working towards their goals. 100%. And, and if you can think that way, you become so much more valuable. Silvio, taking the conversation to Metadata, the company that you work at, what role has demand capture played at Metadata? You touched on earlier that it, you guys are kind of in a, a bit of a new category. Were you able to use demand capture channels like Google Ads early on? Yeah, that's a great question. So Metadata is very unique at kind of setting context. Very, very small total addressable market, relatively large average deal size, annual contracts, multi-year contracts at times. So with us, Google search was actually not feasible in the beginning. Our average cost per click prices on Google was like $35 and up. I think it was as high as 80 for certain terms. Highly, highly saturated. A lot of legacy players over uh, investing in these terms, oftentimes also driving people to ebooks <laughs> with these super high uh, CPC prices. So for us, we couldn't really get Google to work for us in the beginning. And, and honestly, it just didn't make sense. And because it kind of goes back to understanding your numbers. When we just saw that average cost per click price and we knew the conversion rate that we would need to even break even on that, we knew this isn't a winnable fight. And I think that's half the battle is, are you fighting a fight that you have a chance to win? So for us with Google search initially, 
it was off the it was off the table. Uh, Captera, similar story, not as bad, but it was very very expensive, so it was kind of just off the table. We had little to no budget in the beginning, and then from there we kind of stumbled upon. Um, Jason and Mark stumbled upon this conversation ad type that was newly released in LinkedIn. And that was truly what was able for us to work as demand capture initially. And just on LinkedIn conversation ads alone, I think we're over to date like 5 million in close one revenue, probably more than that, from that one ad type. And we were able to leverage LinkedIn conversation ads with an incentive to really get a lot of hand raisers in our small bubble. And that was our primary thing that we used in terms of driving demand capture, and it's still to this day. And then from there, we kept the lights on, gave ourselves runway by driving those conversation ads to really allow Mark and team and you know everyone in Metadata to focus on building that moat and really building our brand and our audience and developing our unique point of view so we can start to do demand creation. That's awesome. I- Sylvia, for our listeners who don't know what LinkedIn conversation ads, would you mind just highlighting what they are? Yeah, absolutely. So think of if LinkedIn and Drift or otherwise a chatbot, like if LinkedIn and a chatbot had a baby, it would be conversation ads. (laughs) It's a sponsored message that goes into your LinkedIn inbox and it has different options. So you can set up different responses. So for example, I can, my message one could be like, hey George, love what you're doing. You know, if you're interested in X, Y, Z, would you be interested in a demo? And then from there you can set up different responses. So like, yes, I'm interested in a demo and then it'll it'll send up, it'll give a, a pre, written response, no. So you can create these different conversation flows. That's why it's called a conversation ad based on these different responses and have an entire conversation with the receiver in their LinkedIn email, uh, in their LinkedIn inbox. How did you run that um, initially? Were you worried about, I guess, burning any potential bridges? I mean, personally, I can't stand it when that first point of contact is someone reaching out, asking you for a demo. How did you grapple with that internally? That's a great question. We try to do things as with ourself in mind, right? So we have the advantage of marketing to ourselves. like we're B2B marketers marketing to B2B marketers. So we kind of went in with that stigma in mind of like, we don't even like to receive messages like that. So when we written the message, the way we wrote the message was very personalized. It was authentic. Um, and, and we really went in it with that, you know, hopefully if you get nothing else from this message, you think like, oh, I, you know, they definitely offered me something because it's a value. But they did it in a way that was, you know, well received and it wasn't just like, you know, spammy and pitchy of no value at all, right? And was it sent to people who had already engaged with metadata in some way, shape or form or the employees at metadata beforehand or were these sent completely cold? It was a combination. So it was to folks completely cold and then it was also to folks that have interacted us within some, some way, shape or form, whether they visited our website viewed our LinkedIn company page. It was a combination of those two initially. Well, I was going to move the conversation to creative a little bit later on, but you've already touched on it. So I want to explore that a little bit more, Silvio. I've seen you advocate for DIY creative for YouTube and LinkedIn ads. I've seen a lot of the creative that you guys have put out for metadata and it just really resonates with me. Uh, It's very, very authentic. It's very raw. It's not overly salesy. It's quite direct. How do you find that the creative that you guys are doing yourself in-house compares to more polished or professional advertising that you're running? Yeah, it goes back to the numbers. So for us, just 
answering the question directly, it, it works immensely well. It resonates with our audience. We see in terms of conversion rates, it converts really well. It, it just lands with our market personally. Um, now that's not to say for those that are listening, you can't do super uh, like like video shoots and do things very polished and professional. The way I always say is just go back to the numbers of all the amount of time and in investments and resources spent to create that super polished creative and headcount. What was the net outcome versus you doing a loom video for five minutes or a webcam screen recording, et cetera? What was the amount of creative that you were able to output? And then was the net return positive or negative? So kind of going back to having that investor mindset, that's how I, I, invite, I invite people to think about this. For us, hands down, it's not only in terms of time, but also investment and then outcome. Doing that DIY creative has been extremely fruitful. It's also very native to the platform. So we do a lot of social media-based advertising on Facebook and LinkedIn, and we want content that is as native to the platform as possible. So when people receive it, the first thing that doesn't go off in their head is, this is an ad, right? And typically things that are more polished in nature have an ad feel, right? It's kind of a giveaway. So by and large, uh, we highly recommend it. It's also a lot easier to get started, uh, especially with video, to just do an unpolished video. It's more authentic and raw, whether it's with your iPhone or with your webcam on your laptop or computer. And just to get the ball rolling versus waiting you know, three to six months to, to get one video clip created, you get it out there and you don't get any feedback. So would you then advocate, Silvio, for, I guess, a quality um, and a variety of ads to test from the beginning rather than that quality, uh, you know, spending months going through creative, trying to have that perfect ad from the beginning? Absolutely. So in terms of quality, the two biggest things that you need is, number one, um, more than anything is you need good sound. If we're talking about video specifically, you need good sound. And the second thing you need is you need decent, uh, you know, a decent video camera. Minimum 720p, I would say, is like bare, bare minimum in today's world, which your iPhone alone can film in much higher resolution than that. I think you, you can go up to 4K now on the iPhone, I heard. That's insane. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So that's like bare minimum. And more so than the video or the image itself, uh, but more so when you, if you're doing a video ad, it's the script, the words you're using, the hook in your copy, so that way you can grab listeners in or, or viewers. That's more important, and then from there, you can start to test and iterate on top of that. So the variation of creative is really important, especially with social, with ad fatigue, and especially if you're going after like account lists, very small audience sizes, you're gonna fatigue that audience very quickly. So really making sure that you have different variations of creative is gonna be essential. Bringing the conversation back towards more the demand capture side of things, now that we went on that, um, I guess, creative tangent, which was awesome, and I really wanted to dig into that. With your position at Metadata and the business that you run at Ad Conversion, you see how a lot of B2B businesses are spending their budget on paid media, particularly in those demand capture channels. What's the most common thing that you're seeing them do wrong right now? It's going to sound so basic, but it's the, it's the fundamental things that people get wrong that make all the difference. And I would say number one is they're just not paying attention to their campaigns. When I so I used to be the head of performance marketing at Metadata performance marketing team. Uh, essentially, they they help our clients execute their campaigns. And I would used to tell the team, I'm like, if you want to be a successful performance marketer and you want to drive the greatest ROI, you have to embrace the boring work. 
it's the boring work of looking at your campaign and is my CPL up, down? What are the trends? How are we doing that make all the difference? And that's the number one thing that by far folks just miss is they're not giving their campaigns enough attention in terms of how are we doing and catching that and making those iterations. Or at the very least setting up automation to take care of it for them so that way they have those safeguards in place. And then I would say the second thing that I noticed is a lot of folks fall into the trap of testing for the sake of testing, but they don't test for the sake of learning. They just keep pumping out different variations of creative. They all look literally the same. It's all, let's for example, white ads with uh, you know um, some image and then it's like different variations of copy, but the difference is like, come here versus check out, learn more. Like it's so marginal in terms of actual lift that it doesn't really yield uh, you know, a net impact. So I would say that's the second biggest thing of, of what I see folks doing. And then the third is that they are just too quick to uh, make decisions. And in the sense of like, they start up in, in a new channel and they expect it to return right away. I always tell folks, any experimentation program, you should think of it as like a 90 day pilot. Month one is just figuring out any initial traction and, and you know anything that potentially could work. Month two is, hey, we've kind of gone through the horrors of month one and, and we have some gems here. And then month three is really polishing, refining it so you can really scale. Some folks can find success as soon as week one out of the gate, others month two, but having a 90 day expectation is really good so that you just give it the time that it needs to develop. Setting those expectations from the outset is so important, particularly if you're relying on something like smart bidding and the platform's AI solutions. I mean, you actually need enough good quality conversions to feed back into the platform to start optimizing too. Now, diving into the weeds a little more on that, Silvio, are you a smart bidding fan and advocate? Are you so in the weeds that you're manually bidding on these platforms? I am a fan of smart bidding. In the beginning, I wasn't uh, a couple of years ago, if you would have asked me, but they've gotten a lot better and they're, they're a lot smarter now, uh, no pun intended. But the challenge with smart bidding, specifically with Google ads, is especially if it's a, a newer Google ad account, you don't have enough conversion history. And if you start with something like a max conversions or a target CPA, Google will set your bids automatically so low that your ads won't actually get any delivery or serve impressions despite having enough search volume. So in those instances, I find it's better to start with manual bidding, get at least 15 conversions, and then switch over to something automated. And the question is, and Kevin and I actually shared the same perspective as you. We did ran a number of tests doing manual versus smart bidding and eventually concluded, damn it, that machine is probably a bit better than us um, running this huge account manually. But the question is, if you and your competitors are all doing smart bidding, then where's the advantage? The advantage is in the details. So your competitor might be doing smart bidding, you're doing smart bidding, but your competitor might have an awful quality score because they don't have relevant keywords with relevant ads to a relevant landing page. They completely missed the message match. Uh, it could also be that your competitor is blowing out 40% of their budget on the weekends and you you had the you know the insight to just show ads Monday to Friday because you actually looked at your ad schedule performance so that you're you know you're getting that that optimal return where they're losing money. It could also be too that your competitor is only bidding on uh, you know five keywords as an exact match, so they're lo they're really losing in terms of that visibility and that impression share. And you're scaling past them because you're leveraging phrase, and then you're even going into things like broad discovery where you're leveraging broad match with an audience. So 
smart bidding is one really key aspect, but it's not everything. It's also the details within the campaign and understanding, I call them the hidden gems. What are those hidden gems in terms of those different variables within your campaign that you can segment further and put your, your budget towards and really exclude to get in front of that optimal mix? So I guess it's that maintenance and constantly being aware of what is and isn't working within the platform, trying to tie searches all the way through to opportunities, all the way through to closed deals. As you said, checking, you know, even the details far as what's going on with your ad schedule, it's all incredibly important. What about in terms of the data that you're actually feeding into the machines like Google Ads? Yeah, so big it needs it needs a lot of conversion history. So for folks that have longer opportunity cycles, starting with leads, getting as you know leads, so mapping out your lifecycle stages and feeding that back into Google. And the most simple way you can do it is you can assign a dollar value to each lead stage. So one dollar for a lead, two for an MQL, three for an SQL, so on and so forth. So at least Google has that that inference and that understanding of a lead is more important than an MQL. So I will bid more aggressively for a searcher that based on their AI, they think will turn to an MQL versus one that maybe will only become a lead, if you will. So that's all about really going beyond just trying to generate leads, you know, sending paid traffic to eBooks and actually looking at, okay, we don't really care about the fact that they've just become a lead. We want to make sure we're optimizing towards like, you know, more and more qualified leads. Something that we've, uh, I guess, run into as a bit of an issue is in B2B, there can be longer sales cycles and the difference um, between, I guess, like an MQL and then the person who goes all the way through to closed one can be quite different. And sometimes having enough data within Google Ads conversion window that uh, that means you can actually feed that information back into the platform. Sometimes there's not enough there and that can be a little bit of a struggle. Yeah, I, I mean, even even having it, and and because it is a 90 day click cycle, so any com- any offline conversions after 90 days, you can no longer upload that that Google Click ID. It expires in terms of as- associating that conversion event. But even having that up to you know a lead an MQL you know SQL is far superior than just a pixel based web conversion that you know it will always be inaccurate. You know ad blockers. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised in the future privacy restrictions. You know enter the the Google sphere as well. So that is so much more optimal in terms of feeding the machine. And it will be 95% more accurate from a tracking conversion perspective currently versus the those pixel-based conversions. Coming back to the challenges that you touched on uh, earlier, what are, I guess, in more depth, some of those challenge that you, challenges that you see in scaling these demand capture channels? The biggest challenge is there is this point, this threshold of diminishing returns you just don't know where it is. So for example, it what it will look like practically, let's say you're investing in Google Ads or, or Captera, and you're profitably, or maybe not even profitably, you have a good pipe to spend, let's say we're not even talking revenue yet, you have a good pipe to spend in terms of at 40K a month, your, your pipe to spend, let's say a 7X and things are looking good. But for some, once you get from 40 to 50, it's like this, this delta where now the net gain that you get in terms of opportunities created, pipeline created, is so inefficient that your pipe to spend went from 7x 
down to like, I'm being dramatic here, but like 4X. And you continue to invest more money and then you just start to see the net gain of those additional dollars just doesn't fan out and it doesn't really yield enough. So it's like, when you get into these capture channels, just understand that you will hit a wall. It's normal. Find out where that wall is. And then from there, have your campaigns kind of be on maintenance, if you will, driving that consistent return. Continue to you know refresh your creative, maintain the system that you built but start to expand and look for new channels. So if you can, if you have the opportunity to expand demand capture across additional channels, that's fantastic. If you don't, I recommend all companies really start to you know, build for tomorrow today as soon as possible. So if you can start to free up budget, so maybe you notice from 40 to 50 that, that delta, that net gain wasn't there. Well, hey, you got $10,000 now. How about we put that on demand creation? We go after you know a, a fixed audience or a fixed account list that we really want to get them to know, like, and trust us, and we can start there and start to get in front of those folks and start to build that relationship. So now we can feed more inputs so that we're less reliant on people having to go to Google and and you know search one of our non-brand keywords. Now we can increase our branded search traffic. We can increase our direct traffic. We can increase our retargeting audiences across platforms and be able to retarget folks uh, and, and stay in front of them. I wanna get into your approach on retargeting in a moment, but before we do that, what signs can our listeners look for uh, to know that they're starting to come to that point of diminishing returns uh, in demand capture channels like Google Ads? Yeah, you you will notice when you look at your reporting, you're gonna notice your pipe to spend is dropping for that channel. You're gonna notice your cost per opportunity is increasing. And you're gonna notice that the amount of additional opportunities created for that spend that you put in is just not worth it. Um, the other thing I would say as a flag that could ye- can happen to get you to that point quicker is if you notice your average CPC is dramatically increasing. All these demand capture channels are extremely saturated. I think I always call it, think of it as like a bloodbath. You know, everybody there is fighting to show up for that one search. Uh, everybody there is bidding like crazy on Captera for that you know top one or second spot, and it's expensive. So not only do you have limited volume, you also have this time bomb in terms of click prices. Uh, I did this analysis on Captera spend. We, we spent about a million dollars last year on Captera for one of my consulting clients. And our average cost per click increased like 33% over that one year. Wow. That was just one year, you know? So imagine that over a couple of years. So if, and, and not just to do doom and gloom for those that are dependent on demand capture, be a good steward of you know your campaigns, like understand your numbers. But in addition to that, really pay attention to your landing pages. Make sure that you're optimizing those landing pages as much as you possibly can, because that is where truly a lot of the gain is to be had. I always say Google search is like peanut butter jelly, like you, 50% is the peanut butter, which is Google, if you will, and then the, the other 50% is the jelly, which is the landing page. You need both for an optimal sandwich, in my opinion. So you gotta take care of both and really paying attention to your landing pages, making sure that you're optimizing them is critical. If you can get that conversion rate from five to eight percent, that is a massive, uh, you know, lift that will have great, incredible impacts in terms of like combating those increased cost per click prices, reducing your cost per opportunity lower in the funnel, increasing that pipe to spend, and a lot of great stuff to come from it. And it's so easy to do. You can get started with like free tools like Google Optimize and start running experiments on your on your landing pages. 
I love that analogy. I actually had my first peanut butter and jelly uh, sandwich maybe a month ago. Mind blown. I can't believe that I haven't had it. No way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if they're just like not as big a thing over here. And it it was sensational. And uh, I I completely agree. Like you've got to have the jelly and that landing page can play such a big role. And uh, listeners, Silvio actually released a, a little tool on LinkedIn um, the other day, which really shows the impact of really the conversion rate of your web of your landing page and how that can impact the performance of your ads. And I really encourage you guys to go and check it out uh, because it can make such a difference, right? The difference between a five or eight percent conversion rate on your landing page can be the difference between a good return on ad spend and a bad one. Yeah, absolutely. So you spoke a little bit about retargeting. Do you think that you can have a successful demand capture strategy initially without also spending budget on retargeting? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, if you're bidding on search, but you could, yes, absolutely. But why is, is kind of my thought process. If you know, my, like all, like one of my favorite things about understanding marketing and advertising is I get to help family and friends with their businesses and projects and, and kind of advise them on, on things that they're doing. So like every, if, you know, if my mom came to me tomorrow and she's like, I wanted to run paid ads. The first place I would tell her is to do retargeting. It's the most cost effective and usually uh, the greatest in terms of conversions, because these are people who know, like, and trust you. And if you're just getting started out, starting out with retargeting, you don't have large audience sizes. So once you meet the minimums on these channels, you can start to show retargeting ads to a very small audience. And yes, your ad will fatigue quicker, but you get to be a big fish, so to speak, in a very small pond. And in that person's meant like mine, they're gonna be like, man, uh, George is freaking everywhere. I go to LinkedIn, I see him. I go to Facebook, I see him. I go to Twitter, I see him. He must be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the truth is George is only spending $25 a day across those three different, you know what I mean? On, on those three different platforms, if you will. So absolutely you can, but I would suggest to always stack the deck in your favor. Uh, it, you should never have this uh, one versus the other mentality. Take advantage of as many things as you can and build on it. No, that's a great approach. And look, with limited resources, I mean, I think it probably always makes sense, as you said, to start with retargeting, start with people who are already aware of you, aware of your brand, and make, your seem, make yourself seem as big as possible. Um, to that person and be like, oh my God, George and Silvio, they are everywhere. I think I even saw someone doing it on LinkedIn um, to promote themselves for a job. They were targeting like the company uh, that they were applying for a job. Oh, at yes, ran, I know you're talking about. That, that was, yeah. uh, that was, was Tim. That? that was Tim. Yeah, Tim, yeah, Tim, Tim from Drug Tim. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. right, yeah. That was yeah, awesome. That was I love that. <laughs> really love that. And if you if you have a strong organic presence and you're doing a good job, so, you know, let's say, you know, let's, let's take an extreme example. If you're a bootstrapped SaaS business or any bootstrapped company of any kind, really, and you're going to market and you have no money, right? Like everything is on you. Start with organic, capture as much traffic as you can, learn these native channels, right? Learn how to do well on LinkedIn or TikTok or Twitter, wherever your ICP is, and build your presence online. But make sure to install the retargeting pixels on your website as soon as humanly possible so you can start to build that cookie pool. A lot of these ad channels too are also allowing you to retarget based on 
in-platform actions, such as people who watched your videos, people who clicked on your ads, people who saw your ad on Twitter. You can actually retarget based on impressions of content on Twitter, it's insane. Um, so build as much organic presence as you can. You're building those retargeting pools. Now your first campaign when you go to market in terms of paid ads is retargeting all of that traffic that you've built and you've nurtured. In terms of ROI, you know what I mean? These are people who know, like, and trust you, so you can get additional scale, you can promote additional content to them uh, and offers, so that way they're seeing two things and not just, hey, buy my stuff all the time, and you're continuing to build on that goodwill that you gave, and you're gonna be everywhere in their mind. They're gonna have a, you know, in terms of seeing you, because perception is reality, now if they come in, they, they schedule a demo, they sign up for a free trial, they're gonna think you're a much bigger company than you might actually be because of this approach. And then from there, hopefully you've gotten some cash flow, you, you're starting to get some returns. Now, hopefully you have additional budget, now you can start to do more top of funnel prospecting campaigns from paid ads, whether that's LinkedIn conversation ads with an incentive, Google search ads if, if your CPC makes sense, Captera if your, you know, your bidding makes sense, maybe even something like a software advice paper lead where you can actually just pay for them to send you leads based on your qualifications. Um, that's kind of what I would recommend for folks. It's a much more sustainable approach to paid advertising and one that it, it's one that actually I noticed that Chili Piper employed at least on LinkedIn. I mean, they're a massive company. They've got, you know, quite a lot of funding. And I think literally the first ad that I saw them run was after at least a year of seeing them on LinkedIn. And I noticed literally the first ad that they ran was a retargeting ad just promoting some of their case studies. And to me, I was just like, wow, like they get it. Even a company with them who probably have some cash to burn were like, well, we don't actually need to do that. Let's start with our uh, highest intent traffic first, the people who are most likely to be aware of us, who just need that extra push, that extra education, and let's start with them. Yeah, absolutely. And and where it gets really fun retargeting is when you really built up those those audience pools. Just to give people some context of how large those audience pools can be, I have one client, and this was recent, where they, for just people who've watched 25% of their video, they have 720,000 people in that audience. Like, <laughs> it's, it's pretty crazy. And that's just one segment. So this is where retargeting can get really fun, where you can now, you can create a whole orchestration where now it's not just demos or trials, it's also additional content that you're promoting to that audience. And you just essentially, you create this retargeting echo chamber where folks are able to see your stuff. And, and this is the one caveat I will add is keep an eye on frequency and reach because anything in excess can be bad, right? If you have a, an average frequency of let's say greater than four, then usually you're gonna start to see things like ad fatigue kick in. So just be mindful of your frequency. So that way you don't, you know, you don't take it too far and you leave a bad taste in people's mouth. Yeah, it's a great point around frequency. Yeah, and making sure that people aren't just being bombarded by the same message, the same creative again and again and again. And a great reminder that uh, not all retargeting is made equal. Speaking of uh, your other business, ad conversion, have you run paid media for ad conversion? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's essentially my, just for my personal brand, um, in terms of creating content, digital products, information, really just educating folks on, nobody, like when I had first started with paid ads, I will remember 
learning and thinking like, why is this so much more complicated than it needs to be? So I remember making a promise to myself then of when I figure this thing out, I'm gonna go back and just share it as simply as possible. I don't wanna sound smart, I just wanna be effective. And that's really my goal with ad conversion is to just share freely with really nothing in return. And a big part of what I love about with ad conversion is I get to just test running ads and campaigns for myself uh, on my own dime and then I can go and turn around to like Jason and Mark and metadata and be like, hey, you got we gotta try YouTube ads. I did this experiment, look what happened. Or I can go to like a consulting client and be like, hey, you know, you gotta try this. So, and I don't have to worry about policy, brand guidelines, none of that. Like it could literally just, you can see some, I can send you some, my ads are terrible. Uh, and you can just test <laughs> freely without repercussion, which is really cool. Uh, one of the experiments that I actually ran on, um, through my personal brand with ad conversion was a TikTok experiment. So I wanted to find out, can you reach B2B buyers with TikTok ads? I ran this earlier this year and the ad was me in front of my camera sitting on a chair and I said, hey, if you're a B2B marketer looking to scale pipeline and revenue, uh, sign up for the ad conversion newsletter where you can get two to three actionable tips every single week on paid advertising. It was like a really simple ad. And what I did was I used a lead form and in the lead form I said, are you a B2B marketer? Yes or no, because you can add custom questions in. And then I said, what is your job title? And it was a free text field where they have to type. Terrible user experiments, mind you, they're on TikTok, they just swiped up and now they gotta type out a job title, right? So <laughs> I let that run and long story short, you can reach B2B marketers. I got of the responses back, I don't remember exactly, I'd have to pull up the stats, but it was like overwhelming. More than 50% said, yes, I'm a B2B marketer. And then in terms of job titles, I saw things like senior director of demand gen, CMO, uh, VP of marketing. I also got some weird ones too, like somebody put princess, queen, uh, like toad wrangler. <laughs> so, you know, they weren't all great, but like that was shocking. And that was an example of like an experiment that I ran on my own. Then I went to Jason and Mark. We still haven't done TikTok ads yet for metadata, but uh, I have sold them. So now it's just in the pipeline, if you will. <laughs> Damn, that is awesome. So, I mean, just by the way you did the creative, I guess that's a way of people self-qualifying, right? Because I imagine the targeting on TikTok yes. isn't quite what it is on other platforms. Yep, yep, exactly. So with TikTok, you don't have the ability to do firmographic-based targeting like on LinkedIn. It's, I would say the closest equivalent to TikTok in terms of targeting is probably Facebook. Uh, the, as granular as you can get on TikTok is targeting based on different hashtags, but they're very limited in nature. Uh, one of the things that folks completely forget, and I say folks meaning marketers in general in the 21st century, is we're so spoiled with audience targeting because we have the ability to target so granularly that we completely forget, forget about the messaging and the creative aspect. Like I always think back to the day of like the David Ogilvy's and the Gary Halberts or, or the Claude Hopkins, you know, he would send out direct mail and then he'd have to wait six months just to collect all the coupons and then, you know, analyze the data and understand the performance lift. Like it was insane, like the feedback loop versus today I can get an ad out right now and then 30 minutes from now I can see really quickly how, what's the initial trend, right? And get that feedback. So in the message itself, qualifying and filtering, hey, if you're a B2B marketer, the audience targeting for that specific campaign was just targeting people that were interested in marketing and advertising that are older than 21 years old, 
for all those listening on TikTok ads, you don't have to target kids. You can target adults, uh, 21 and plus. So I set that as a condition and it was the first five seconds. It was my hook. If you're a B2B marketer interested in generating pipeline and revenue, if you're not a B2B marketer, you're going to scroll through. You're busy, right? You're not interested, especially on something like a TikTok. Um, but yeah, absolutely. That's a, a key thing, especially with YouTube ads. That's actually something I learned from YouTube. The hook is very, very important on YouTube. You want to make sure that you get people to either skip in the first five seconds, because if they don't watch at least 30 seconds of the video, you don't pay. So that hook and qualifying is, is critical. You, you strike me as someone who probably like done some drop shipping or run a business on Shopify before. Like I can just tell from speaking to you that you have actually spent your own dollars on these platforms, which is why you look at it so closely. <laughs> and I think Kevin and I are probably the same, right? Because there's nothing like spending your own hard-earned dime yes. on these platforms to make you look at getting the absolute most out of every little thing you can. Absolutely. I've actually never started my own e-commerce store. It's like on my list of potential things one day. Uh, I'm like itching to do it. But the way I actually got into paid ads was with my own DJ business. When I was in college, I had a DJ business with my cousin. And like any business, you need leads and sales. And I remember going to Google and I searched DJ near me. And I remember seeing the ads at the top of the page. And I was like, oh my God, that's a an ad, you can buy that. And that kind of got me into Google. I'll never forget the first lead that I generated. It was a lead for 89 cents. It was a kid's Halloween party that turned into $600 cash for four hours of work on the weekend. And I'll never forget that feeling cashing in that check. I was hooked ever since and I, and I have like never stopped. But absolutely, the best way to learn, I, and, and if you're a marketer, even if you don't wanna be a performance marketer, if you wanna be a demand marketer one day, whatever it might be, you wanna do marketing, the best thing you can do for yourself, in my opinion, is to start a side project and market it. You're a marketer, so you need to market something, right? And you get so much experience that way. Oh man, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And getting out there and learning from people is one way, but actually getting in the weeds, doing it yourself, spending your hard earned, that's what's really going to teach you. You do have an awesome educational resource on ad conversion. You've actually got a book um, about generating your first thousand leads on, uh, is it Google ads? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So the book is called Google ads profits. It's if I had to teach my mom who has limited understanding of computers and technology, how to be successful with Google ads from start to finish, step by step. Uh, this was the book that I would recommend. So it's, it literally goes through from before even launching your first campaign, doing the pre-work research, uh, you know, going back to that mentality of being an investor, setting up your analytics and your tracking, walking you through that process step by step is why I wrote the book. Uh, and it's, 100%, it's only five bucks um, and highly recommend people to check it out. Amazing, where can our listeners find that? You can just go to adconversion.com and you'll you'll see the, the button on the bottom of the page and it'll take you to the checkout cart. Beautiful. Listener Silvio is an awesome person to learn from. Highly suggest you go and check out that resource. You've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much for coming on the B2B Playbook. I feel like there's so much more that we could cover um, beyond, I think. I feel like we could talk, talk for hours. <laughs> I, I know, I know. We're really just scratching the surface. There's so much more that I wanted to talk to you about. I felt like just looking at ad conversion, I feel like that we've read the same books. I felt like that you've read things around like Russell Brunson and I, I just got so much I want to talk to you about, but we might have to do it in a separate conversation. Thank you so much. There's been so many practical takeaways for our listeners. 
And listeners, that's just a taste of the kind of value that Silvio drops every single day. We absolutely love the work that you're doing at Metadata and Ad Conversion, and you're certainly doing your bit to make B2B, yes, educational, but also more fun. I always really enjoy your videos. You put so much into them. I enjoy all of your posts on LinkedIn, and thank you so much for doing that. Now, before we round out the conversation, is there anything you'd like to direct our audience's attention to or anything else that you'd like to add? I would just add... um one of the biggest things I wanted to know before I got into metadata was what is every company doing for their ad spend? I always thought like that person had the answer or that person had the answer. And then once I finally got through and I saw on the other side, the one thing I realized is I don't care if you are a series E company or a, a series A company, everybody is just figuring it out. So just put one foot in front of the other and be maniacal about your numbers, your baselines and optimizing against that and understanding your audience and you will get so much further. Love it. Thank you, Silvio. Listeners, make sure you follow Silvio's journey. Silvio, where would you like people to find you? Yeah, you can just find me on linkedin.com. Just search Silvio Perez and I'm super excited to connect with you guys. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time and coming on the B2B Playbook. Thanks for having me. Well, Kev, we've been hearing a lot of bad things about demand capture channels of late in the B2B marketing space. And to be honest, we've probably been part of that as well. But it was so great to explore the benefits too with Silvio. Yes, it definitely is nice to flip that coin around. As we said throughout the season, BC often comes down to pay channels and it certainly has its place. And in fact, it has its two places that we've spoken about at the beginning of this episode. One of those places is its role as a demand capture tool. So it's great to chat with Silvio on this topic and see exactly how it can fit in and how to action it in very practical terms. And I might just add again that it's in a rather new way that we haven't really explored with our listeners in detail. You're right, Kev. When we've previously spoken about amplification with paid channels, we're talking about amplifying your helpful content and relationship building through it. But this chat is more centered around using it to amplify your initial organic base and get the initial revenue lift that you need to then reinvest back into your helpful content. So it's great for that if you're in need of that initial boost. And I'm sure many of our listeners are in that position, Kev. Yeah, definitely, George. It's a pretty common occurrence. And as we've been saying, Sylvia has provided really a lot of very practical things to do in this episode. Some of those things include starting with branded search, exact match on the highest intent keywords then retargeting and overlaying the best performing affinity audiences from Google Analytics as your starting point. I also loved his point, Kev, around if Google Ads or any other channel is too expensive to start off in, explore new channels or even ad formats to find the hidden gems. They're definitely out there. You just have to go looking for them. Yeah, that's a great point. Most of the time, particularly these days, Google Ads, Facebook, crazy expensive when you kick off. LinkedIn ads is probably chief among them as the most expensive when you're first kicking off. So definitely take that advice, try different things and you'll find a gem out there. And it was a great point as well that Silvio made that the devil is in the details. Even though everyone's getting onto smart bidding, uh, getting onto the same platforms, it's important to test for a while, around 90 days, but keep a close eye and act on the trends that you actually see in the numbers. You have to do the hard work in looking at your numbers, looking at the performance and actioning them. And he was such a numbers guy, wasn't he? And he said to be maniacal about your numbers. Tie things back to revenue and revenue impact and match that to what you're spending so you know what your scaling is actually having a positive impact. 
Yeah, that's one that often people overlook. And we've been talking about that, you know, marketing should be responsible for revenue, right back to revenue. So definitely listeners, that goes across your paid advertising channels as well, and particularly in demand capture. He also made the point and gives an example in his own case that you don't really need polished creatives to get started. In fact, he makes the point that less polished and more personalized creatives might hit home better and drive more revenue for the cost that you're investing into creating those assets. And you need enough variation in your creatives to test and take learnings without your audiences getting exhausted. Kev, there's so many more specific tips in the episode itself, but we're gonna leave you listeners with this comment that really encourages you all to start something on the side if you can and learn to market it through testing and spending your own dime. It's honestly, I mean, we've both done it, Kev. It is the best way to learn. Definitely the best way to learn if a little scary, but I guess the the fear is what helps us learn faster. All right, listeners, go and connect with Silvio Perez on LinkedIn. Yep, and as always, we're absolutely stoked that more and more of you are joining us every Monday by listening to the podcast. And if we can ask one thing, it would be to please pass the podcast on to someone who you think could get benefit from it or to leave us a short review on whatever platform it is you listen on. It's a huge help to us, our future listeners, and we would really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kev. Thank you, Silvio. Thank you, listeners. Take care and see you next week. Thank you, Silvio. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, George. See you all next week. A quick note before you go, listeners, you can find more great content and get in touch with us at theb2bplaybook.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter while you're there to get the latest news, tips, and resources from our playbook. We'll be back the same day and same time with another episode next week. Thanks for tuning in to the B2B Playbook. Remember, successful B2B marketing starts with the buyer.